I'm going to semi-sort of apologize in advance. I woke up without a voice, but we're going to go with this. <clears throat> I'm going to say a prayer, and we're going to jump in. All right, Father God, Lord, I want to thank you for uh, retreats like these, Lord. Over the last 14 years, I've been up and down with my walk with you. But it's times like these where you grab a hold of my heart and you pull me back. You, you help me to recommit and you fire me up to go out and live a life for you. So Lord, as we go through this, your words, Lord, I pray that you can speak through me and that you can pull on the hearts of these young people and help pull them back towards you, Lord. So when we go back to Tulsa and Alabama and St. Louis and Illinois and everywhere, Lord, that that we can live lives that glorify you. Help us to always make this about you and only you, Lord. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Alrighty, so as, as I was packing for this week, this weekend, I started going through my old campus ministry shirts, and there was a retreat shirt, and there was Rupert Kegger shirts, and it got me thinking about how much it changed over the last few years. So I want to demonstrate one to you here. Hold this. All right. Woo. All right. This is the first ever root beer kegger shirt. We thought we were so cool. We did iron-ons. <laughs> thought we were tough stuff. There was like 17 people that came to the first root beer kegger. So as you can tell, a lot has changed over the last 14 years or so. A lot. And when you think about what we're doing here, we're talking about going from a bad heart to a good heart. When you see me in a shirt, you must be thinking, man, his heart's gotten so big, that shirt doesn't fit right. <laughs> so this is our first ever Rupert Kegger shirt. I might actually gift it to someone this weekend, but we'll see. And this is... My microphone guy here, this is my best friend of all time, Brian Williams, so hold this, I'm going to put my shirt back on. <laughs> that shirt used to be big on him, if you guys were wondering. Huge. All right, okay. All right, so what is the heart? Medically speaking, we all know what a heart is, right? It pumps blood, it, it gives us life, it... It, it takes blood from one place to another. It brings healing. It takes oxygen to different parts of our, to our, to our body, our blood vessels, our arteries, and our veins. It's what our, it's what our body needs to survive. And a healthy heart pumps just the way that God wants it to. And if we don't have a healthy heart, we don't live. Or we don't live for very long. And when our heart doesn't pump the way that it should, our body is attacked. We have heart attacks. We have strokes. We have different things. And it puts us in danger. And as a person whose family struggles with the heart disease and things like that, it runs in my family. It scares me. As someone who's getting, uh, as the Bible says, well along in years. I'm going to be 35 next month. So for, for most people, that doesn't seem like, well, but when you do campus ministry and you're on 18-year-olds all the time, I feel like this ancient old dude. All right, so the National Heart uh, Foundation, the statistics reveal that the number one cause of death for both men and women in the United States, it's more than AIDS and more than combined is heart disease. So I'm going to take a break. Okay, hold on. My new Apple watch that my wife got me. Okay.
I just let 33 seconds go by. Someone just died from heart disease. That's how quick it happens. Once every 33 seconds, someone dies from heart disease. That's pretty crazy, isn't it? Was anyone surprised by that a little bit, maybe? I was when I read the statistic. That's roughly a September 11th happening once a day. That's crazy. So it's pretty safe to say that the human heart is one of the most important organs in the human body. God made it to be that way. And when you look into scripture, you look into God's word, God gave us a heart physically, but then a spiritual heart as well. And a spiritual heart is super important. In Proverbs 4, 23, guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Guard it above all else. Not just kind of sort of keep your eye on it whenever you want to. Above all else, because spiritually, our heart is so important to our walk with God. So we need to guard it above all else. It's important on how we relate to others in Luke 6.45. A good man brings good things out of the good things stored up in his heart. He brings it out. If there's good in his heart, he puts good out. And the people that we run into every day on our campuses and in our jobs and in our families and out at the grocery store, if we've got a good heart and good things in our heart, we're going to bring that out to other people. But, but, but an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So if you've got good, good's going to come out. But if you've got evil, guess what's coming out? Evil. And when that person cuts you off in traffic or online or disrespects you, and when you say, oh, it's just a slip up, it's not just a slip up. It's a condition of your heart. Put good in, good comes out. And so that's why this lesson today is really, really important for us. Because if we go out having bad hearts, we're going to bring in a bad harvest. And that's not what God calls us to do. Robert talked about how Paul wrote in the New Testament two different times about how the Old Testament was written as a warning and as a teaching tool for us. So what I want to talk to you guys today is about King Saul. King Saul, if you look on the outside, he had it all. He was tall. He was handsome. People liked him. He had a position. He had a lot of things going for him. But one thing, he had a bad heart. And eventually he got removed. And what we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about how all that kind of went down. In 1 Samuel 13, 14, your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought a man after his own heart and appointed him leader. This is a warning for us. You can have it all. You can think you have the job and the looks and the degree, popularity and funny or, or titles or different things like that, accomplishments. But if you've got a bad heart, God's going to humble you and he's going to knock you down. And so we replaced them with someone with a good heart. This is a warning. And if it can happen to Saul, it can happen to you. And part of what Mackie was just talking about, I was watching it down here, so anytime I talk about Mackie's class, I'm going to point to there like he was there or something. But um, the thing that Mackie was talking about is a lot of times you think, oh, that was Saul. That could never happen to us. 
Check your pride. It can happen to you. So to appoint him, Samuel goes to the house of Jesse, and he goes down to the line of the sons from, like, the oldest to the youngest. And he's picking out, what about him? He's strong, and he's tall, and he's big. What about him? And he's like, no, 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 no. And then they go to, the, like, the last option. He's not even there at the time. He's out tending the sheep, and he comes in, and he's like, let's take that one, that young one, the ruddy-looking one, kind of reddish hair, Brian. You could have been, like, King David, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I like being fun of him because technically he's a mutant, but... All right, 1 Samuel 16, 7. The Lord said to Samuel, do not judge by the appearance or height. The Lord said, the Lord doesn't see the things the way you see them. People judge by the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at your heart. You see, David was flawed. From Bathsheba to just a bunch of different sins that he had. David was flawed. Saul was flawed. But what was the difference? What man's kingdom was taken from him and the other man, the half the Bible, I feel like, spends praising. It's how they dealt with it. It was the condition of their heart. Because you're going to mess up. I'm going to mess up. Robert, uh, Mackie, Wes, Brian from last night, we're all going to mess up. But it's the condition of our heart. This is God says, well, how am I going to handle this? It doesn't free us from consequences. But what am I going to do with you after? So diagnosing our heart, when you go to the doctor, there's a stethoscope, EKG, the, you've got Fitbits, right? I got, got, like I said, the Apple Watch. My, my mother-in-law, we got like a Fitbit type watch for her because she's got heart issues. It can keep track. There's all kinds of things. Um, the American Heart Association lists the symptoms of pain for your heart. Uncomfortable pressure, discomfort in one or both arms, shortness of breath, cold sweats, nausea, nausea chest pain. Since I can't go to the physical doctor to see how my spiritual heart looks like, how do we figure out, do I have a good heart or heart, do I have a bad heart? How do I figure that out? You see, King Saul uh, had a bad heart. And as we look at him today, remember that Paul says it's written as a warning. So we're going to look at him. The four, uh, diagnosing the heart problem, four warning signs. Number one, Disobedience. Disobedience is a warning sign for a bad heart. And it might be the easiest one because it's the most outward. It's the most outward one that we have. And you know, there's times where I've had disobedience, but I don't think that disobedience has been an overwhelming problem in my life. But is disobedience a pattern in your walk with God? And I'm not just talking about the easy day-to-days. I'm talking about when the nitty-gritty comes up, how do you respond? Are you going to God's word? Or is it I think, I feel, I want? Because if that's not grounded in God's word, you're disobedient. King Saul, 1 Samuel 15. Go attack the Amalekites. These were the nasty people. We would consider them kind of like the Nazis of back in the day. They weren't nice people. It wasn't like, hey, go to your neighbor and do this thing. These are bad people. Know what you're getting yourself into. I've got some things I'm going to tell you. God says to him, I want you to and totally destroy everything. Totally destroy. Does that like leave any room for error? He didn't say just destroy everything, right, or just destroy. He said destroy everything. That's not fuzzy. That's a direct command. But then he goes on and he, he makes it even clearer. My wife does that whenever she gives me directions for things. 
right? She'll go, hey, hey, you got to take out the dumpster. All right, oh, no, fine, yeah, sure. Like, no, you need to go take it out. You need to go take it, put it by the curb, put it, take the recycling because it's full. And if we don't have it, it's going to be a big deal because we have cross and we got sell this week and we got people coming over Friday. And if not, we're going to trash everywhere. And you take it and you do all this stuff. And she's very specific. She leaves no room for error. And <laughs> I still mess up, but that's another thing. <laughs> okay. He says, do not spare them. Put to death men and women and children and infants, cattle and sheep and camels and donkeys. He doesn't say to destroy the people and their stuff. Everything. There's no lack of clarity here. It's almost kind of offensive how much detail God gets. Hey, God, I'm not stupid here. I get what destroy everything means. But God makes it super clear so there's no, like, but God, I didn't know. He makes it clear in verse 4. So Saul summoned the men, then Saul attacked the Amalekites. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. He took the king alive. That wasn't destroy everything. And all his people he totally destroyed with a sword. So he took the king and destroyed all the people. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle. God covered that, didn't he? He spared the best sheep and the cattle, not just all of it. They took the best, the things that had value. The fat calves and the lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy, to destroy completely. But everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. So notice what he spared. He didn't, or notice what's all spares. It wasn't the infants and the children. It wasn't like it was a morality thing. Hey, can someone hold up my beautiful daughter? Just lift her up. This is Penny. People behind the pole can't see her. Penny is adorable. She's the MVP in the baby room. She's quiet. She's awesome. Audrey, can you stand up and wave? And Emmett, will you stand up and wave for the people? Hi, that's my daughter, and then my fat-headed son is pretending like he's shy. It wasn't like it was like they got to this baby, and the baby was crying, and the sword's up, and it's like, oh, I just can't kill this beautiful baby. Or, oh, this kid's got a fat head, and he's kind of funny looking. Or, oh, she does, like, awesome cartwheels and can dance. I can't kill that. That's not what was happening there. That wasn't what was happening the text doesn't indicate that he had any problem with that. Saul's disobedience was in the value of what was spared. The king has value to me. The livestock has value, the fattened calves. Anytime in scripture you see where they talk about the fattened calf, pay attention because there used to be something kind of important around there. There's a reason the fattened calf is mentioned. But he took that stuff alive. The best sheep of the cattle and the fattened calves. He kept the best. Everything that was good, these they were unwilling to destroy completely, and he spared the kings. Having a bad and disobedient heart will get you into trouble. I want what I want, so you make compromises for it. I see this a lot with young men, but I wanted it. Okay, well, where in Scripture does God say that you should have that? But I want it. That's stuff I expect to hear from my little kids. But I hear that from not just your generation. I don't want to be like that old guy, but your generation. All men and people do that. But I want it. That's not in Scripture. And it doesn't start off with the big stuff like that. 
It starts off with the way you spend your money, the way you spend your time, who you date, the jobs you take. And then it leads to the bigger, the divorce, the cheating, the drinking. You just don't jump off the deep end right away with this stuff. We make little compromises. You guys, you young people are setting the course for your entire life. If you compromise now, you're going to compromise later. But if as a young person, you can commit yourself and you say, you know what? I'm going to, as Brian said, trust and God. Then when it comes down to making the harder decision, you're going to trust and obey. But if you compromise now, you're going to compromise later. If you're disobedient, it means you don't have enough faith to trust God with it. Trust God, trust and obey. In 1 Samuel 13, 14, but now your kingdom must end. This is after the disobedience. He's king. He's at the top of the heap. And Samuel says to him, but now your kingdom must end. God's going to take what he gave to you. Your kingdom will come to an end. For the Lord has sought a man after his own heart. Saul, you got a bad heart. God wants a man in there that's got a good heart. Because you have not kept the Lord's commands. You have not trusted and you have not obeyed. And when I look at our lives and I look at my heart and I look at the hearts of my young people, I just want to say, like Brian was saying last night, trust and obey. Have a good heart. God can give you the world. But if you don't have a good heart, he's going to take it from you. So all this stuff that you think you're working for, the degree, the, the six-figure job or more, the girlfriend, the wife, the kids, you don't take that stuff to heaven with you. You can lead your family there, but if you don't have a good heart, good luck with that. Disobedience on the surface is an indicator of the heart. God is willing to forgive weakness. We see that with David. What he's not willing to forgive is a weak and disobedient heart. In Acts 13, 22, later, God removed Saul and let David rule in his place. God said about him, David, the son of Jesse, is the kind of person who pleases me pleases me most. He does everything I want him to. What pleases God most is the person that does everything he wants him to. Today, it was really cool. I woke up. I took a shower. Uh, um, I was in a shower, and it was steaming, and I let it go, and then I tried to talk, and I, literally no words came out. And I was like, oh. And so I text Lynn and Carol, because uh, I didn't want them to get like a curveball later. I wanted to, as, as soon as I knew something was up, I wanted to let them know. And Lynn, without skipping a beat, Lynn was like, I got you. Either you're going to do this, or I'm going to be right there. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read your notes, and I'm going to do this lesson. A willing heart. Because that's the kind of man that he is. Mike Napier last night, talking about wanting to die, you know, on the battlefield, doing missionary work. It's a man that's willing to do whatever. And so for me, I'm following in these, these old patriarchs, their footsteps. And I'm like, man, I want to go. If I lose my voice in the middle of the lesson, I'm just going to go do it. And if Lynn has to get up here, he has to get up here. But it's a willing heart, an obedient heart that God's looking for. Trust and obey. So the first thing is a disobedience. The second thing is a defensiveness. Our bad hearts are most often revealed through disobedience. But what do we do after disobedience? What happens when we're challenged? Do we get defensive? Do we buck up? 
feel the need to defend ourselves? 1 Samuel 15, 3 through 9. So why did you not obey God? Why did you grab all this loot? Why, with God's eyes on you, did you brazenly carry out this evil? This is the message paraphrased, and it's not always great, but I love how this says it. Saul defended himself. What are you talking about? I did obey God. I did the job that God set for me. I brought in King Agag and destroyed the Amalekites under the terms of the Holy Band. Is that what God told him to do? No. Have you ever been there where you've been in, like a, in a relationship or an argument with someone? Um, I'm so glad Leah's like right in the middle like right here. I was going to bring up my wife, but she's just such an easy... Leah used to be in my small group. This is my best friend's wife. Uh, she used to be in it. And Leah and I are very similar in our styles of fighting. And we've argued and butted heads to the point where we didn't, might have questioned our love for each other at some points. And so, Leah, let me ask you this. <laughs> she's going to hate Have you ever been in the middle of an argument with me? I'm going to get down on any here. Have you ever been in the middle of an argument with me and realized, man, he's right? Absolutely. And have you ever just said, full speed ahead, I'm going to do what I do? Absolutely. And I've done the same with her. And we've done that with our friends and our best friends and our wives. We get in these things and we're like, oh, dang. But the defensiveness in us is like, full speed ahead to crazy, stupid town, right? Because then it's this big thing and there's text and we got to get our leaders involved and all this stuff. And it's like, oh my gosh. There's a defensiveness there and Saul had the same thing. So when you get defensive, like I said earlier, do you buck up? Do you get defensive? Do you feel the need to justify your disobedience? Well, newsflash for you. If God removed Saul from his position, he'll remove you too. He's going to knock you down and humble you. So you can't be disobedient. Because Saul had it all. He was attractive, athletic. He had a position, even a God-appointed position. That's one thing in ministry that I know that God has brought me to where I am now. But if I let my heart be bad... He'll take me out. He's got no problem doing that because God wants someone that's going to accomplish his mission. So he'll raise someone else up or he'll bring someone else in to do what I'm doing and probably do a better job at it. Saul was comfortable, and some of you are comfortable. Satan wants you to be comfortable because when you're comfortable, you miss things. And being comfortable and a bad heart don't mix. So you can't be defensive. When you're comforting your challenge, your heart will show uh, with disobedience to save what you've done. I'm sorry, I'm struggling a little bit with my voice. When you're comfortable and you're challenged, sometimes your heart will say, I'm going to save what I do, so you do whatever you do to keep it. Does that make sense? So my position, God's given me a ministry position. And when I'm comfortable and my heart's bad, Instead of doing what God wants me to do, I'm going to get defensive and try to hold on to what God's given me. That's a warning sign for you. So we get disobedient. We get defensive. Number three, deflection. Deflection. If defensive doesn't work, I'm going to deflect it on someone else. That's what I'll do. All right, 1 Samuel 15, 21. But my men did not kill the best sheep and cattle that they captured. Instead, they brought them here to Gilgal to offer... 
as a sacrifice to the Lord your God. It was, how's that some leadership from the king? It wasn't me. It was my men. My men did it. It's that but. But um, they brought them here to sacrifice. More stellar leadership. More deflection. Notice the guilt that he says here. He doesn't say the Lord my God. He's talking to Samuel. It's the Lord your God. It's kind of like whenever Emmett does something, and I'm like, well, your son did this. Talking to my wife. You kind of don't claim it because of this, this guilt or this being ashamed. That's what, they, um, that's what Saul was doing here. And it wasn't a new tactic. This has happened since the beginning of time. Adam in the garden. Genesis 3.12. It was the woman you gave me who ate the fruit, and I ate it. Well, God, if you just had given me this beautiful woman. Earlier, it was bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She's beautiful. And then when the, the problem, the sin enters the world, it wasn't my beautiful wife was here, and I didn't lead her the way that I should have. It was, but the woman did it. Guys, this is just aside from the lesson. Deflecting to your wife is never a good thing. So you just write that down. That might be the most important thing you hear all weekend. Don't ever deflect it to your wife. Be a man and just take it. Back to the lesson, okay? Deflection shows your heart. Defensiveness shows your heart. Disobedience shows that you have a bad heart. Number four, delusion. Delusion. Brian said it last night. A lot of you know it. What's the number one reason people don't want to try out a relationship with God? Hypocrisy. Some of you didn't say it because you know you're a hypocrite. I can be a hypocrite. I'm not perfect in this. But hypocrisy. You know, when you're walking, your talk don't match up. Back in middle school, this is showing my age 20 years ago, more than 25 years ago almost. It's when skating and skateboards was real big and you wore the big pants and you did those things and you wore the baggy Jinko jeans and the chain on your wallet and you did all this stuff. And if you were found out to dress as a skater and you weren't a skater, what would they call you? Does anyone know? Poser. If you got called a poser in my school, those were fighting words. Those were fighting words. You're taking your chain wallet off. It becomes a weapon, right? You're grabbing your skateboard, trying to crack someone over the WWE style, right? Off the top rope, boom, right? No one wants to be called a poser, but we put up with it in our relationship with God. We put up with it. And like Brian said last night, if you point the finger and call someone else a hypocrite, there's a good chance you're probably that too. Saul was a hypocrite in his walk with God. He wasn't obedient. David was disobedient. But God said, you have a, you're a man after my own heart. And it's funny when I played disc golf. I played frisbee golf. It's like stoners and alcoholics and then me. And uh, <laughs> I'm kidding, but the demographic isn't quite like that. But I'll be playing disc golf, and I'll be throwing, and we get to talking. And I don't tell that I'm a minister right off, not because I'm ashamed of it, because people usually kind of guard themselves a little bit when they're around me. And I want people to be real when they're around me. And so they'll be smoking weed and drinking and doing all this stuff, cussing. And then we'll, we'll get to talk. I say, what do you do? Oh, I'm a painter. Oh, I do this or I do that. 
And they're like, well, what do you do? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I work for church. I'm a minister. I work with college students and young adults. I kind of help out the teens. It's a small church, so I kind of do a little bit of everything. And then it's funny. They'll be like, well, I go to church too. I go to, I go to such and such a church, and, and I'm, ready, I'm, I'm a small group leader. And I'm thinking, this dude just smoked a baddie three holes ago. What is this dude doing? Cussing, doing all this stuff. And then they're, they like prop her up. And they have a better posture like that changes everything that just happened. Hypocrites. And it drives me crazy. It drives me nuts because it hurts the cause. It hurts what God is trying to do in our community. Because all the rest of my friends, they look and say, oh, he's a strong Christian herb of the earth. I can do what I want, right? TC's this weird guy, and I'm okay with being the weird guy. I mean, I took my shirt off, and it was way too small earlier. I'm okay with being the weird guy. But it hurts the cause. He's delusioned about where he is in his relationship with God. He's got a bad heart. He thinks that he's in a secure position with God, but he's so far away from God, he didn't even realize he left God. We cannot be hypocrites in our walk with God. So we can be deluded by our position as the first thing we can be deluded by. It was King Saul. He's the king. He can do whatever he wants. In 1 Samuel 15, 17, and Samuel told him, when you started out in this, you were nothing and you knew it. Then God put you at the head of Israel and made you king. Here's another news flash for you. You ain't nothing. I don't care how long you've been around. I don't care if you're born into it. I don't care if your daddy or your grandpappy's an elder or a preacher or anything like this or you're a small group leader. When you came into this, you were nothing and God brought you to where you're at. Whether you grew up in a church or you came into the world, God brought you to right here. You didn't do it. You did not do it. You are nothing without God. I don't care what kind of job you did. I don't care if you become a CEO. I don't care if you're enough Jeff Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg. You are nothing without God. In this life, what matters is what God gives you. When you started out in this, you were nothing. That just is like, ooh, ooh, like stabbed to the heart, twist the knife. That's crazy. Some of you have forgotten that. We get comfortable. You get deluded by your position. In Obadiah 1.3, the pride of your heart has deceived you. You are nothing. So we can be deluded by our position, whether that's a position in ministry or our position as a, as a, a disciple or a Christian. Just because you're in this life doesn't mean that you're safe from this and safe from having a bad heart. Number two, you can be deluded by partial obedience. By partial obedience. Karl Marx once said, religion is the opiate of the masses. People don't want a genuine relationship with God. They want a way to relieve their guilt. If I go to church on Sundays, I'm good. If I go to small group even, I'm really good. I'm a little bit better. If I give more than 10%, look at me, I'm a saint. The mafia back in the day was known for giving money. A partial obedience so they could relieve the guilt for the things that they were doing. And we do that in our lives. And we can be deluded by the things that we do. A partial obedience same thing happened with Saul in 1 Samuel 15, 22. Then Samuel said, do you think that God wants, all God wants are sacrifices and empty rituals just for show? He wants you to listen to him. Plain listening is the thing, not staging a lavish, lavish religious production. Like I said, going to church, 
doing these amazing church things isn't what God wants. He wants a good heart that is surrendered to him. Time and time I see it. I can usually tell when someone's going to walk away from a relationship with God because the partial obedience becomes way more obvious. Why well, go to church? They start sacrificing for work or for a boy or for school, and the partial obedience is the first thing that I see. And so my campus ministry students or just whoever, if your leader's asking you about something, it's usually because those are warning signs of where your heart's at. So don't jump down your throat and be like, get out of my business. Why are you questioning me? If they're seeing partial obedience as ministry leaders and as God-appointed leaders in your life, that's the first thing that we look for. So please, go home with that as well. All right, so it does no good. We go, we get our EKG, and it shows a weakness in our heart. But if we leave that appointment and it says that we need open heart surgery or we need a stent or something put in, a pacemaker, and we leave and we don't get the treatment and we don't figure out how to make the changes to have a good heart, it does us no good. So we can diagnose it by looking at, are we disobedient? Do we get defensive? Do we deflect to someone else or something else? Are we deluded about where we are in our position? Check those warning signs. But here, five things. Five things that we can do to have a healthy heart. Number one, I, I can ask God to change my heart. When Samuel goes to anoint Saul, Saul is hiding in the luggage. He lacked the confidence. He lacked the willingness. He lacked the heart to even begin to lead. It kind of goes back to when I found you, you were nothing, right? But here's what happens in 1 Samuel 10.9. As Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed his heart. Now, I'm not sure what happened between that heart change and I'm going to spare the cattle and the king and things like that. But God gave him a willingness to even get out and lead, to come out from the luggage and to go out and lead his people. If you can do it for a guy like King Saul, you can do it for you. In Psalm 51.10, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Maybe David prayed this because he had seen what had come before him. And he didn't want to end up the same way. Because like I said, he messed up. And with a bad heart, God had plenty of chances to destroy David. And here's what I know. God can't force you to have a good heart. I've seen it. I've seen people come around and they make these changes. And then they fall away. And then they come back around, and then they fall away, and they come back around. And they start making these decisions where from afar I'm looking at them, and I'm like, God has given you, he's taken everything. He's taken people from you. He's put you in accidents. He's put you in jail. He's borderline. We had a guy come around one time, came around, thought he had HIV. If that's not enough a life sentence to scare you, and that guy is so far away from God right now, it's not even funny. It's like, pull my hair out, and I cry for these people because God, I just want to say, God, why can't you just take their heart and make it good? Because I love and I care about those people. And they're running their, their heads into a wall. God can't force you to have it, but if you're willing, God can take your heart. Like in Ezekiel, when he says he can take your heart of stone and he can give you a heart of flesh, he can do that for you. But you got to be willing, and you got to ask him to do it. But when you do it, be careful what you pray for. So 
for the last year and a half, and this is where I'm going with this, I've been praying, and this is not to toot my own horn at all. I've been fasting three times a month, almost for two years now, actually. The 8th, the 18th, and the 28th. And I'm like, kind of like funny and dad jokes. You don't eat on the 8th because it's the 8th, you know? And I'm like, that's how I remember and stuff. It's, to see, it's only funny to like three people. But for me, I chuckle like every time, like, it's the 8th. Oh. And so I've been fasting, and here's what I've been fasting for. For God to change my heart. I've been fasting for God to bring men into our immediate church family that can lead in the kingdom. A year and a half after that prayer, we met Brian and we met Darius. And these are men that have come in and they're not perfect and they've got their things, but they're men who can lead in the kingdom. And if I had time to tell you all the dots and the things that go one around meeting these guys, it's insane. A year and a half, I've been praying for God to change my heart in that time because if we had met a year and a half ago like we could have, I don't think I'd have been ready because I had a heart of stone. And the reason that's great, like, or so I've been told, the reason that I got chosen, usually it's like a weakness thing. They're actually saying over the last year, you've made all these changes in your heart, and that's why we want you. So I'm like kind of sort of teaching the class out of strength, and I'm like, oh, praise God, finally I'm growing in something. And so... So, this constant fasting, and like I said, be careful what you pray for. And I said, God, take anything out of my life that will hold back my leadership. And so, over the summer, I started getting this pull on my heart. I've been a wrestling coach for the last 14 years. I've wrestled for over 20. And I started getting this pulling, give up wrestling. And it was hard. Like, literally, just tears, crying. It was, it, it was a part of me and who I was, part of my identity. And if I were to list the things in order of things that I didn't want to give up, it would have been within the top five. And I got this pull to say, you know what, give this up. And I had this conviction, all right, I'm going to do it. And I told the coach, hey, I'm going to step back from the team. I got, I got a new baby. I, I got my kids. I need to focus on them. I've got my ministry, kids, my family. I've got my church. I need to give this up. And he's like, okay. So I give it. And I was like, all right, all right, God, here we go. So then I'm driving I'm down the road, and I'm driving. We've got a bunch of universities, and there's this university that just started a wrestling program, and I know the coach, and it's like 10 minutes from my house. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to stop in and see if, if the coach is in there. And I go in. He's not there. So I sit on a bench, typing this stuff up, kept it, catch, does anyone have group me outside of our groups? Tulsa, do you guys do group me? It's the bane of my existence. I dislike it. If I go inside, I don't have service. I come out and it's like, bing, 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 bing. It's like a thousand messages. And I'm catching up. I was like, all right, I just need to catch up on this. So as I'm about to leave, he walks out and we start talking. And he's like, what are you doing here? I'm like, hey, I don't even know. I don't know what I'm doing here. I just kind of felt like the spirit was leading me here today. So what do you need, man? And we start talking about the team. And we start talking about um, uh, what I do for the church and, and, and all this stuff. And he's like, hey, man, I'm really interested, man. Let's catch up. So we grab a lunch like a week later. And I start just dreaming for him. And I'm like, hey, I know you guys have a chaplain. It's like a nun. It's this old lady. But she's not, she's not like an athlete. Like I can relate to these kids on a level that she can't. Like how about I come in and do some devotionals and He's like, dude, he's like kind of nodding his head. And then he's like, you know what? I also need accountability in my life. 
and he's a, a Christian man. And so we start talking about him and his wife and things like that. And then that night I get a text, hey, man, the more and more I think about it, the more it just makes sense for me to offer you this assistant wrestling coach position, a volunteer. You won't get paid. I just want you around my guys and in my life. And God flings open a door to another university, and we don't have any students there. Kicks the store open and says, hey, here you go. Here's an end. He said, you'll have an ID. You can scan in anywhere that you go. You'll be on campus. You won't have anyone ask any questions. I just want you around. And if I had had that high school wrestling thing, I never would have been listening to the God's spirit to say go to the Fontbonne University. So when you pray for that and you allow God to soften your heart, God opens up doors and says, you know what? This is the direction I want you to go. And it's crazy. We've had more and more talks. And I've, as, we, as we've gone in, I'm like, this is just amazing. And I keep saying, oh, you don't want me to practice. He goes, if you come to practice, that's a bonus. I just want you available to my guys to talk and to minister to them. Because they, they're what you need. And it isn't anything great that I'm doing. It's God and his spirit working through me. But you can ask God to take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And if you're consistent and you're faithful and you're earnest in that prayer, God can do that for you. Because trust me, as Leah can attest, if God can change my heart, he can change yours. Because I was known as like the douche of the campus ministry, the jerk. And if he can bring me to where I am now, he can bring, take you even further than where I'm at. So I ask God for it. Be careful what you pray for, though, because he may ask you to give up something hard. But are you going to be disobedient? Are you going to be defensive? Are you going to deflect? Are you going to delude it and say, it's not that big of a deal? God doesn't really want me to give up all of it? How are you going to respond? Number two, I can admit my sin. Because when I admit my sin, I activate God's mercy. But when I hide my sin, I activate God's wrath. And you may not see a direct verse that says, if you hide your sin, you'll activate God's wrath. But look in the scripture, the sin of Achan, what happens? Achan and his whole family is killed. Sodom and Gomorrah. Sin, unkept sin, or un, untaken care of sin, God's wrath comes down on that. Hold my... Whose baby is that? First Samuel 15, 24. Then Saul admitted to Samuel, yes, I have sinned. I have disobeyed your instructions and the Lord's command. Saul was confronted with disobedience. He defended and he deflected. David broke and he repented. So you can admit your sins. Are you going to get defensive? Are you going to deflect? Are you just going to admit them? So many times when my kids mess up, it isn't the actual thing that they did. It's the cover-up afterwards. My son, he's not even paying attention. My son, I tried talking to him. And I'm like, just have a conversation with me. And he's already like doing this cry thing to try to manipulate and get out of the punishment. And I'm like, kid, if you would just admit what you did. And that's God looking down at us. He gives them a chance. When I was reading through the sin of Achan, they tell them the night before what they're going to do. The next day is when they act. I'm not sure because it didn't happen. But the God that I see in the Bible, the admitting the sin, 
that could have turned out a whole lot differently if they had been like, you know what, it was me, I did it. But he waits a whole day because he wasn't willing to admit his sin. So I can ask God, I can admit my sin. And three, I can address the cause. My older two, they're a best friend of me's. They're awesome. They play together and do all this stuff. But when you're really close with someone and you spend a lot of time with them, you fight a lot. And so the other day, or two weeks ago, Audrey was being mean to Emmett, and she apologized. And I said, what are you apologizing for? And she said, what do you mean? And I said, well, Audrey, when you sneeze, why do you sneeze? The sneeze isn't the cause, it's the symptom. There's something going on inside of you is why you sneeze. And she's pretty smart, so I said, so what do you need to say to Emmett? And she says, I'm sorry I sneezed on you. I was like, that'll preach. Let's put that in a lesson. And so she said, I'm sorry I sneezed on you. And I said, no, Audrey, there's an anger in you. There's a heart problem here because what he did did not warrant you getting angry and trying to hit him. We address the real issue. A lot of times we want to address the outburst, the sneeze. But it's our heart on the inside that causes the sin and the things that come up. In 1 Samuel 15, 24, I have disobeyed for I was afraid of people. Here was the cause. He had this fear of the people. And he let the people determine his actions and not the commands of God. The fear of people. He was addressing the cause after the fact. Matthew 6, 24. You can't worship two gods at once. You can't worship two gods at once. Loving one God, you'll end up hating the other. Adoration of one feeds contempt for the other. You can't worship God and money. Well, for Saul, it wasn't God and money. He had all the money he wanted. You can't worship God in the approval of men. You can't worship God in lust. So if I were to look at you and say, you can't worship God in what? What would your fill in the blank be? Because that's what you're making your God. There's no partial obedience here. You love God. You put God above everything else. It's not God 1A and then 1B or making something equal to God. You address the cause. You've got a heart problem. And the more I did this lesson and the more I've thought and prayed on it, like, I feel like that's what my job is. I'm a spiritual uh, cardio doctor. That's what I'm doing. I'm looking at my people's hearts. I'm saying, where are you at? How can I help you? How can I give you a stronger heart? A lot of times with my campus students, like I said, if they miss church, it's not that they miss church. I want to know where their heart's at. Where is your heart at? You address the cause. You address the cause. Number four, I ask God for forgiveness. I ask God for forgiveness. 1 Samuel 15, 25, but now, please forgive my sins. This is after the fact. Please forgive my sins. In 2 Corinthians, it talks about worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. This is not a godly sorrow from Saul. He's worried because his kingdom is being taken from him. Please forgive me so I don't lose my kingdom. I don't lose my position, uh, the approval of man. Please forgive me for this. In 2 Corinthians, it says that a worldly sorrow brings about death, a removing of your kingdom. 
But godly sorrow brings about repentance. It brings about a heart change. It brings about a life that God desires for you. So I ask God for forgiveness. I fall on my face. I fall to my knees and I say, God, I have sinned against you and against your kingdom and against the things that you want me to do. Please come into me and forgive my heart so that way my heart can be good. Because the longer I hold on to this sin, the longer I hold on to it, the easier it is for me to have a heart attack and fall down and die. So come into my heart and forgive me. Help remove this sin because if you don't do that, you're just going to be like the dog that returns to his vomit. And goes back to that stupid sin that you were doing in the first place. So number five, I can associate, associate with the right people. Saul said to Samuel, and come back with me so that I may worship. And again, this is after the fact. If he had had Samuel that close to him the whole time, do you think that he would have disobeyed God the way that he did and got defensive and deflective and been deluded in his position? Because Samuel was a truth speaker. He would have let him know where he was at. He didn't have Samuel in the right position. And a lot of times we want to hang around these people that are just going to tell us the things that we want to hear. I was talking to a guy, studying the Bible with him, and he's like, you know, I hear what you're saying about being a disciple, but I just don't, I don't know about this. I'm like, you know what? You haven't surrounded yourself with people with the same purpose. People that are going to hold you accountable and give you the heart check and say the hard things to you. When you put yourself around those people, it makes a relationship with God so much easier. But you can't be prideful in that. So I got a, an illustration to close out here that I saw on the internet. So this is not an original. I'm going to close on my computer. I appreciate you guys for not like, calling me and bombing me like I would do to you. All right, so I'll close this up. Hold that. My lovely assistant. Here we have this vase. This vase represents your life. And on the inside, you've got your heart. Right? And these balls represent the deflection, the defensiveness, and the disobedience. And the first couple I put in, it wasn't that evident that there were any in there. But over time, they build up. And there's nothing left on the inside. But here's what happens. You start asking God to change your heart. Okay? And then you start asking for a little forgiveness and surrounding yourself with the right people, and it starts to change a little bit. And at first, you may not think, man, this isn't really working. You've built up this reputation for yourself within your community and with God, and you just don't feel that much different. But like fasting for a year and a half as you go, and you start to fill up, that other stuff starts leaving your life, and you're filled up with God. And eventually, all the stuff will eventually leave your life. And here's what happens. If you don't fill it with something good, when these balls come back, they go right back in. And for the first 12 years of my walk with God, I don't feel like I did a good job of filling this back up. And I'm not saying I don't struggle today, but when those stuff comes back, it's a whole lot easier to keep those stuff on the surface. So guys, as we leave here, the condition of your heart matters because now 
The people in the back can see my heart change from a distance. And they're wondering, man, I have all those balls in my life. I have all those things in my life. How do I get this? How do I get rid of those balls and this defensiveness? How do I figure out what God really wants for my life? How do I live a blessed life here? How do I become a blessing for other people? How do I break the cycle? Well, you break the cycle by filling yourself up with God. Fill yourself up with God. Ask him to change your heart. He can take your heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh. It's not good enough just to leave this lesson and say, you know what, I do have a bad heart. Leave this lesson and do something about it. Talk to your leader. Dive into God's word. Ask God to make your heart soft. Because we can be a, a generation that have good hearts. When we come here next year and the alumni is gone, it'll still feel as full. If we can be a generation with soft hearts and with good hearts, my kids are going to have hundreds of people across the country to look up to and say, you know what, I can be just like them. I can make a difference and an impact in the world just like them. They can get on Facebook and they can see what CIA is doing and the Alabama group's doing and what sort of ministries in Florida and, and wherever else we are. They can see that because good hearts matter to God. God uses good hearts. So leave this place determined to take a bad heart and make it a good heart for God. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, I want to thank you first and foremost for getting me through this lesson, Lord. I wasn't sure. There was a point in time where we just, you know what, he's just not going to do it. And, you know, I just, I don't know. Without you, it wouldn't have been possible, Lord, so I thank you. Lord, I pray here today, Lord, that we can look with an undiluted, undefensive, undeflecting, and obedience outlook on where our hearts are at, Lord. And when you leave here determined to say, you know what? I'm going to do whatever it takes to get rid of my bad heart and to have a heart that lives for you, Lord. I pray that we can all leave here determined to be described as David is described as a, as a man or a woman after your own heart, Lord. That as we fill ourselves up with, with the godly things, Lord, that the people in this world can see our hearts and you know what? Say, you know what? That's different but I want it. And that we can make an impact and a difference in our worlds around us, Lord. I pray that one day we all make it to heaven and we can celebrate and we can party together and we can worship and you say, you know what? God, you used us in just even a little tiny way to make a difference in the world and we thank you. And most importantly, Lord, I thank you for sending your son to live for us, to set an example, to, to lay a foundation of your church, Lord and to make the ultimate sacrifice for all my sin and my weakness, Lord. I thank you for your grace and for your mercy, Lord. You're too kind and you're too loving. Lord, help us to live all of our days for you, giving you glory and everything. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.